0: You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 16. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. On today's show, we are continuing with our theme of vulture conservation with an interview with PhD candidate and vulture expert Evan Beakley. Now, Evan and I have been close friends for a while now, and it was actually through our work with vultures that we were first connected— Both of us spent several years working with the California condor in northern Arizona and southern Utah, and Evan's work with this massive species of vulture in North America, uh, I think, inspired him to focus his doctoral research on vultures and vulture conservation. Having worked extensively with North America's largest and most threatened vulture, as well as with vultures in Africa and the Middle East, Evan has a really fantastic big-picture perspective on vulture conservation. We'll be talking about why it is that vultures as a group are facing really serious declines all across the globe, uh, as well as delving into the focus of Evan's doctoral research on one particular vulture species, which is the Egyptian vulture. First, however, we're going to check in with Ben Mirren, who is coming to us with another edition of our current event segment, The Birds and the Beats. In today's segment, Ben is exploring a different group of African animals that are facing similarly drastic population declines, the lemurs of Madagascar.
1: Welcome to the Birds and the Beats. In today's segment, we're going to travel to a different part of Africa, where an endangered group of mammals is becoming increasingly critical to the survival of a very different ecosystem. Much like vultures are the soap of the savanna, the lemurs of Madagascar are the gardeners of the island's tropical forests. Madagascar's fruit trees depend on lemurs to spread their seeds around the forest through their scat. Research has shown the seeds of common canopy trees in the island have a 300% higher chance of sprouting and becoming saplings when dispersed by lemurs. In a lemur's absence, they simply fall to the ground and are forced to compete with their parent tree for resources. The following song was inspired by this symbiotic relationship and is composed from the calls of various lemur species as well as sounds recorded from trees and seeds.
0: Wow, really interesting stuff there, Ben, as usual. Uh, Tell us a little bit about some of those sounds that we're hearing that you incorporated into this new track.
1: The first set of sounds you heard were recorded by playing trees in the woods of Prospect Park in Brooklyn, near my house. While holding my field microphone, I plucked loose knobs of bark and twigs to get my bongos, crunched leaves to get my backbeat effect, and plucked the edge of a broken limb to get my kick drum. Lastly, to evoke the idea of seeds from the fruit... I purchased a bag of acorns, almonds, and walnuts from the grocery store around the corner and shook them in my hands to add to the rhythm section.
0: Very neat. Now, how about the lemurs? What species of lemurs are we hearing from in this song?
1: Recent research has focused on three lemur species as agents of seed dispersal. The red-fronted brown lemur, the red-bellied lemur, and the southern black-and-white ruffed lemur. Among these, the southern black-and-white ruffed lemur makes a key appearance— but other species in the mix play roles in the seed dispersal as well. Here's the Indri lemur. It's primarily folivorous. It eats mostly leaves. But its diet also includes occasional fruits. The ring-tailed lemur is another fruit-eating species you heard in the breakdown. It relies on tamarind fruits for almost 50% of its diet during the dry winter season from May to October. These animals can ingest seeds that are often too big for birds or to be carried by the wind, and so are essential to maintaining the current balance of tree species in the forest.
0: Now, as we've seen through our examination of vulture populations across the globe, symbiotic relationships like this can often be upset. Uh, So I guess I'm wondering what the conservation status of these lemurs is.
1: Not great, Matt. 91% of Madagascar's 103 known lemur species are already endangered, And recent increases in the lemur pet trade, alongside a general decline in frugivorous, or fruit-eating lemur populations, are starting to undermine the survival of the island's endemic fruit trees. Researchers estimate that as many as 28,000 lemurs have been kept illegally as pets in Malagasy cities over the past three years alone. Some of these lemurs have global populations of less than 10,000, so the threat this poses is obvious. Conservation efforts around the world typically focus on mitigating more typical threats like deforestation and hunting— Madagascar's lemurs are not safe from these problems either, but thorough protection of a species depends on us covering all the bases, even those in the urban environments we tend to forget.
0: You know, that's a really great point, Ben. As wildlife biologists, I think we often overlook the importance of paying close attention to urban environments and the role that these areas play in the conservation of wildlife. While we generally consider areas with really dense human populations to be having detrimental effects on wildlife, like the example that you explained in Madagascar, this is not always the case, and it doesn't have to be. In the interview that we're about to hear, vulture expert Evan Beakley talks about how one of Africa's largest population centers has become a haven for many endangered species of vultures and other avian scavengers. Let's jump into that interview. All right, I'm here with Evan Beakley, who is a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Utah and uh, a, a longtime good friend of mine. Uh, welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, Evan.
2: Thanks a lot, Matt. It's uh, it's great to be here, and it's uh, good to talk about some vultures with you.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, Evan, uh, you and I uh, share a love of vultures since the two of us worked together for number of years uh, on the California condo recovery program in Arizona. So um, I think I know your answer to this first question I'm going to ask you, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Um, h- how did you first become interested in in vultures and vulture conservation?
2: Yeah, it's probably what you're thinking, which is um, that I, I had long been kind of interested in birds since childhood and had, a, had an interest in birds. But not really vultures. I mean, I didn't really know much or think about vultures really at all um, until I was relatively recently out of uh, undergrad and happened across a posting for a job position working on the California condor recovery program in, in Southern California, and that was a program that I had heard about. It's a you know being a pretty famous program and in conservation biology, and so. I, I applied and got accepted as a as an intern with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, um, and went out and spent some months out hiking around in in some of the wilds of Southern California, up in the mountains, and and tracking condors around. And it it really quickly became apparent that that vultures were pretty awesome, and <laughs> specifically specifically California condors. Um, just in in terms of, I guess, in a lot of different ways, but. Uh, one thing that really stuck with me right away was just how intelligent they were, how uh, there's really complex hierarchies within them and just they're very complex and, and interesting um, interesting birds. And so that really that really got me interested and then then a position opened up with the Peregrine Fund working with California condors as like a full-time thing in, in northern Arizona, and so I managed to transfer over there and continue to work with condors for quite a few years, and that really just kind of solidified my interest with, with vultures.
0: As much as I would like to dedicate this entire program to talking about California condors and, and how amazing they are and, and, and what an interesting species they are. Um, mm-hmm. and, and all of the sort of conservation threats that they face. Um, I, I think I'm going to save that for a, a future episode of the podcast because I mm-hmm. do want to jump into um, the, the, the research that you're doing currently um, at, at the University of Utah as a part of your, your PhD. So I, I guess I would ask you, you know, I mean, was it this, uh, I, I mean, did your work uh, as a biologist with, uh, working with the California condor did that inspire you to, um, uh, pursue your current research focus?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely. Um, so after, after working with, with condos for several years, um, I mean, I, I still think of myself as, as a, as a broad biologist in in the sense that I would love to work and study a, a number of different organisms. And, and I've done a lot of uh, work with, with different birds and, um, but I think after working with with the California Condor project, vultures have really become my specialty and what I'm most interested in doing. And so now at the University of Utah, that's that's what I'm working um, on my PhD with, uh, is, is specifically vultures. And it it definitely originated in that, and just kind of seeing how seeing how complex and interesting the scavengers were, and then also how how understudied they are. Um, there just hasn't been that much research into them until the last couple of decades where, where things have really started to take off. Um and, and, and then there's also like they're often painted in in, in not, not the best light. And so um, as I became more interested in them, it really became a, a, a passion to say like this is this is something that, that we don't know much about and they're really fascinating and they're they're often um, not not portrayed in the best ways, so so it, it's become kind of a personal thing where I really want to pursue it and and um, learn more about them and and hopefully uh, share some of that passion with 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 people and and so we can figure out ways to to save them and and learn more about them
0: So the California condor is a, a new world vulture, um, and mm-hmm. the vultures that you're currently working with um are old world vultures. Uh, what is the difference?
2: Yeah, so there's uh, two two big groups of, of vultures in the world. As, as you say, the new and the old world vultures, and these are two big groups that are not uh, phylogenetically related, right? So they're not um, uh, from the same group of animals. the The old world vultures are closely related to hawks and. Eagles, which makes a lot of sense. That's kind of how we fit them into the our picture of, of birds. Um, but the the New World vultures actually are are not in that same grouping. And for the for a long time, they were uh, grouped with with storks. Although recent. Recent genetic analysis has kind of put that in in a shadowy light too. So they're they may not be with storks any longer, but it's it's still somewhat unclear where they fit in in the phylogenetic tree. But these these groups are are really distinct. Um, but they look and they they behave so similarly, and so they're kind of a, a classic example of convergent evolution, where these two different lineages kind of come together and 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 to serve very similar roles in the ecosystem.
0: So it it seems like vultures are facing pretty dramatic conservation threats universally all across the globe. Mm -hmm. Um, I I mean, is there something about this group of birds um, that, that we can cite as maybe an underlying cause of this phenomenon?
2: yeah yeah that's a that's a really interesting question because it's it's really true that all around the world um vulture species are declining in in you know on many different continents and in different habitats um that being said there there are differences in the rates of decline uh, between those two big groups the new world vultures and the old world vultures and that the old world vultures are actually faring much worse uh overall than the new world vultures um but but many of the species in in the Americas are also declining, including you know the California condor was pushed to the brink of extinction. The Andean condor in South America um, is declining and and not not doing very well. Um, but some of the smaller bodied species in the Americas, like the tr- turkey vulture and the black vulture, actually have uh, increasing or or stable population trends. So they they tend to be doing better off. I mean, I think that's part of the reason why a lot of people in in the united states for example um don't necessarily have the picture of of vultures as being a really highly threatened group of birds um but but going back to your question i i really do think that there are some some major underlying causes for why vultures are are faring poorly and one of them is definitely has been highlighted in in earlier episodes of the podcast but it is um just dietary toxins so because vultures are scavengers and they only eat dead things um in the modern world a lot of dead things have toxins in them and and so they they're they're more likely to go out find find something that maybe ha- has been poisoned and then you add on that the layer of them being um highly social when they're foraging so they 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 if one bird finds carcass, it's very likely that many other vultures will join. And that can can then, you know, one poisoned carcass can can lead to the deaths of dozens or, or hundreds of individuals within, within a population. Um, but I think that there's, so this is something that I've actually started to look at a little bit more in depth also. And another big factor in the declines of vultures is just their natural history, right, which is that they, they're really long-lived species living 30, 40, 50 years, um, and they have really slow reproductive rates. So any increase in mortality can really, uh, can really cause their populations to decline. And I think that's one of the reasons why the really small-bodied uh, turkey vulture in the United States Actually has a much faster reproductive rate than a large bird like the California condor or many of the large uh, vultures in the old world and so that that may be at least part of the reason why it's doing um, fairly well in comparison
0: Tell me about your your current research focus and and how it relates to vulture conservation
2: yeah so so currently i'm i'm with vultures um, mainly in the old, old world and and particularly in the Middle East and North Africa, so we have uh, field study sites in, in both Turkey and in, uh, Ethiopia. And I, I'm trying to, to look at a kind of a, a, three different main, main questions. One is trying to look at why vultures are declining globally, um, both, you know, related to their ecological traits and, and also different, uh, human factors that are causing their declines. Um, more specifically, we've been putting out a lot of tracking devices, so GPS uh, units, small GPS units that we attach to the uh, Egyptian vulture, which is an endangered vulture spe- species in the old world. And so we're we're doing a lot of tracking of that species to try to figure out um, both its, its range, where it's ranging in the area, its migration routes through the Middle East and into Africa, um, in order to identify uh, areas that are they're key for for management and conservation of the species, and then kind of the third leg of the research is to try to get at more of the the ecosystem services question with that term, just meaning how how ecosystems can benefit humanity. And then um, vultures, I think play a really, really outsized role in in um, benefiting humans. And it's kind of surprising in that we we, ha- we kind of portray them in a bad light, but but the very fact that they're feeding on things that we don't want to see around um, is what makes them so important, right? They're going out and they're eating carcasses. Um, they have really acidic guts, so they're consuming rotting meat and they're processing disease. And in a lot of cases, the pH of their gut will just outright uh, kill disease agents, Um and then they're also you know then flying off into remote places where they're maybe um just kind of just get, getting rid of the disease diseases so taking them away from humans when vultures decline as w- was the case in in India and Pakistan when the vultures declined by upwards of 90, 95% in like a, in a decade that led to really a, a drastic increase in other scavengers, right? If the vultures decline, something else is going to go out and eat the carcasses. What it was in South Asia was largely uh, dogs and rats, both of which are are big vectors for disease. And so that led to uh, a big spike in rabies cases in, in India. Um, and so, so I'm trying to look kind of more at how vultures play into disease regulation um, in Ethiopia, which is... Is a very poor country, um, and it's also a place where there's large vulture populations. Some of the largest vulture populations remaining uh, anywhere in the old world, and there's also uh, really old old practices of uh, discarding of carcasses just by leaving them out in the environment. So it's kind of a perfect place to study how vultures may help regulate disease.
0: So tell mm-hmm. me, I mean, what what is Special about the Egyptian vulture? I mean, just give me sort of, you know, for folks who know nothing about the natural history of of this species or what it even looks like, um, you know, what what's special about this species?
2: Yeah, the, the Egyptian vulture is is uh, really interesting. Um, it's it's a relatively like small-bodied bird, um, kind of about the a little bit bigger than a turkey vulture. Um, but it, it has kind of dazzling dazzlingly white plumage so it's all white um, with kind of a bright yellow head um, so it's it's a rather strikingly very clean looking uh, rather be, uh, beautiful bird um, it it's it's relatively well known throughout the Middle East because it's uh, it's, it's regarded as a human commensal just meaning that it it it's often found around people and it, it likes, uh, you know, it visits uh, villages and often even nests very close to villages. And so it's this uh, species that is kind of closely associated with villages, particularly in the Middle East and North Africa. And so there's a lot of actual uh, uh talk of of egyptian vultures in in ancient writings and you know egyptian times and it's a very prominent prominent bird throughout um, early human history um it's also renowned in in biology for for its use of tools so it's one of the one of the few bird species really of, of any animals that is known to use tools um and what it does is it uses both both rocks and sticks to to help crack open ostrich eggs which are one of its favorite food sources in the in the african savannas um so those are those are a few interesting stats about the species
0: that's fantastic i did not know that uh, egyptian vultures were tool users wow amazing Maybe you could just give me a description of sort of what, what their niche is. You know, what's their sort of specific role, you know, uh, uh, on a carcass or, or within this sort of uh, a guild of scavengers that exists uh, in this part of the world?
2: It's a relatively small vulture. Um, it has like a long, skinny, downward-hooked bill, uh, and it's very skittish. So you actually rarely see it. Um, at like a, a fresh carcass, or if you do, it'll just be on the periphery, kind of waiting for all the all the activity to, to clear out, um, which is indicative of its role in scavenging. Which is is that it goes around and comes in late after everything else has kind of decided to leave a carcass, and will then go out and and kind of pick pick through the tough tough remnants that have been kind of left behind. Um, it it also I think specializes in. In uh, in finding things that other vultures wouldn't, so the old world vultures scavenge predominantly by vi- by sight, um, and and therefore a lot of them rely on really large carcasses. But the Egyptian vulture is is known to really find a lot of small carcasses, into, including small mammal carcasses, and and you know eating ostrich eggs, like I mentioned, and so it has has kind of a, a role at the periphery of large carcasses and
0: maybe you could explain what the range of the bird is and you mentioned that you know the, the the study sites that that um that you have set up for your research are in ethiopia um and in turkey um i mean is this a migratory bird is it going back and forth between these two areas yeah so that. The
2: Egyptian vulture has a really broad uh, range, so all, it's found all the way from Western Europe uh, into South Asia, into into India, and then southward into uh, North Africa, into East Africa, into Kenya and Tanzania. And there's actually a small, small population in South Africa near uh, Namibia. It's kind of a isolated population. Um, so basically, throughout you know Europe, Asia, and and Africa it can be found. Although it's been declining drastically, it declined a lot in in Europe. Um, populations in in Southern and Eastern Africa are really in decline and related to, uh, Asia, the, the numbers declined a lot. So really now the real heart of the species range is in the Middle East, in North Africa and in Spain. Um, it also is a migratory species, so it's it's migrating between these between um europe and and Africa and also from kind of the Central Asian plateau into south india into India um, and the Arabian peninsula initially uh, when we were starting to track this species. Uh, there's very little research done on it in the Middle East and so we we didn't we knew it was a migratory species and that the birds left um, they left Turkey at the end of the summer and there's there's evidence from raptor migration counts in Israel particularly um, showing that you know large numbers of Egyptian vultures pass through Israel on, on the way south um, and then also evidence that that Egyptian vultures winter in, in, in Northern Africa. But we really didn't know when we first put on the our tags. And it was really, I think, um, we had established field sites in both Turkey and Ethiopia. And we we tagged birds with GPS units in Turkey in the summer. And they happened to migrate to Ethiopia in, in overwinter. And we went down to Ethiopia and we managed to track down some of those same individuals that we had tagged um, about 4,000 kilometers to the north in, in Turkey. And so that was, um, not total luck, but there's definitely some luck involved.
0: So you mentioned that, 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 um, that the Egyptian vulture is, is in decline and that, you know, these, Mm -hmm. these populations have declined pretty dramatically. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, do, do, do you have any sense of, uh, uh, the, the causes of this decline
2: yeah it's it's challenging to to list you know just one one cause or one or two th- things and then we're talking about you know like more than half of the the world's surface so there's a there's a number of factors that are at play and it's it's definitely kind of a regional thing or even country by country um th- that being said there are a lot of you know what what people are finding wherever they study it are some of the same causes that are causing the declines of vultures all around the world. Um, I think the major, the major cause of decline is still from, from dietary toxins, whether that's, uh, uh, lead poisoning from, from bullets or diclofenac in South Asia, uh, a veterinary drug that's poisonous to vultures. Um, there's, um, in, in in Turkey the, the vultures are reliant on garbage dumps so there's some indication that they may be ingesting ingesting plastics and things that, that may be detrimental to them although we don't know a lot about that quite yet um, other factors include direct human persecu- persecution so in parts um, there's a big project in the Balkans in, in southeastern Europe um, that has shown that that human persecution of nests can be a big factor in declines. People going in and, and actually collecting eggs for specimens or, uh, or, or just sh- shooting at birds. Um, energy inter- infrastructure is a, is a big cause of decline um, in a, large, a lot of large birds of prey, um, particularly vultures, because they're relying on thermals and they're kind of slow and lumbery in flight. Um, and so things like power lines and wind turbines... Um, have been shown to to uh, to kill Egyptian vultures and and a lot of other large species. So I think it's it's definitely like a multifaceted problem. Um, but when you kind of hone into to different regions, then different things become more more important.
0: So uh, I'm I'm wondering if you know. Th- through your research thus far, um, if if you've discovered anything that was particularly surprising, I mean, you, you mentioned you know the the sort of luck that was involved in you know the the fact that mm-hmm. the, the birds you were tagging in Turkey, you know, actually ended up you know migrating to an, an area close to. You know your established research site, research site in Ethiopia. But as far as what's causing these, you know, the declines of these birds, you know, as far as mortality factors are concerned for the species, you know, have, have you guys uh, uh, discovered anything surprising thus far?
2: Well, in, in in terms of mortality, I can't say that we have um, a uh, a great grasp on lines in in Turkey and Ethiopia specifically, um, but. The, the, there is some anecdotal evidence of, of things that may be really important. Uh, one of which is there's uh, a a foraging site where where birds are foraging at at a at a garbage dump in eastern Turkey, and right right near it, there's this big power line where we found um, we found some dead Egyptian vultures under, and so that's that's kind of an example of just. A, a place that's attracting vultures and then there's this this really lethal um, uh, thing right next door and so you know that that could be a significant significant cause of mortality um, and, and something that we're, we're we're hoping to work with the turkish government to to think about ways we can renovate power lines in a lot of cases there's really simple simple ways to update those things um, another I think really interesting thing from our research uh, today is has, has just been looking at the the migration routes of the Egyptian vultures. Um, and one thing that's been really striking is that all of our birds are uh have have a very similar um similar migration route. And in particular, they're they're crossing over a strait between the Arabian Peninsula and the Horn of Africa. Um it's called the Bab el Mandeb Strait. Uh, which is just i think it's about 12 miles wide and there's a couple islands there so it's a it's a really I- ideal crossing point between the countries of Yemen and and Djibouti and i think that's that's something that we're really curious in looking into more just for the fact that if you, if you have so many birds concentrating in a single single place if there is if there is something dangerous there whether it's human persecution or power lines or, um, uh, w- whatever it may be, then if all, you know, birds from a large population are all funneled through a narrow area, that could be a really uh, important place. So that's, that's something we're we're looking into investigating more.
0: So h- how are vultures in general doing a- across Ethiopia?
2: Ethiopia is, uh, is, is a really fascinating country and they're, there really has been very little research done um, in in regards to vultures in the country, uh, much less so than than almost you know many other countries in the world, including Kenya and tanzania and and other places. so so we don't know very much about vultures in in Ethiopia. Um, but that being said, their populations are r- really robust. Um, there's much larger vulture populations um from from personal experience there's, there's a lot more vultures in Ethiopia than there are in Kenya or um or really any other place that, that I've been um and so the vultures seem to do, be doing really well in Ethiopia but that being said people who have been on the ground who who you know native Ethiopians um that are interested in biology and stuff when you talk to them about vulture populations there are indications that, that there are uh, pretty steady declines um, that they're not as common as they used to be. Um, And so, so, you know, that's something that we're, we're starting to, to hope to look at by we're, we're starting to do kind of road transects all over the country where we uh, count, count vultures from, from a vehicle driving kind of slowly on, on rough roads um, so that we can have more of a, a, a solid baseline for the vulture population stout, starting now, um, when their populations still seem to be pretty robust, and then going into the future, you know, we can we can have a better, uh, better baseline to, to measure changes against. There, there are also are some indications of things that are currently causing uh, vulture declines across the country, um, as as Corin talked about in, in Kenya. And really, all around the world, but poisoning is a, is a huge threat to vultures. And we've we've, got, we've started to um, some colleagues in Ethiopia have started to look at um, the, the there's threats of of uh, municipalities across the country uh, using poison baits to control uh, feral dog populations within within towns and. In cities, and then often they, they they collect the dogs that are poisoned, but then they just take them out to a municipal open system dump, and they're dumping them in these in these dumps where you know vultures are then come, coming and eating on the carcasses. So we know that, that that is happening. We know that they're they're using poisons, that they're going out to these dumps, and that it's very likely that vultures are then going and feeding on them. We don't have a lot of of um, uh, direct evidence of those declines yet, so it's, it's, it's both really exciting to be working in Ethiopia where we, we don't know that much about it, but it's also, there's a lot of challenges, right? Because we, we can't um, directly compare our results against uh, previous, previous counts um, in, in many cases.
0: So it, it sounds like vulture populations in Ethiopia. I mean, it, it, it sounds like there are some of the same threats that vulture populations mm-hmm. are experiencing, you know, a, a, across East Africa um, and and also in other parts of the world. Um, but I mean, despite that, like you say, these vulture populations, you know, uh, seem to be a lot more robust than they are in you know some of the neighboring countries in East Africa. And I, I mm-hmm. wonder if you have any sense of why that is. You know, why is it that these vulture populations, you know, uh, have have maintained you know these these higher population numbers
2: yeah yeah that's it's an interesting question and i i can't um pretend to to know the true answer um but i i have a couple suspicions um it, it it's also it's it's like it's particularly amazing considering that ethiopia um is the second most populous country in africa it's after after nigeria it's it's there's people everywhere it's not ethiopia is not a pristine environment um it's it, it, there's you know there's people everywhere the, the the country is highly modified um and and a lot of the the wild large mammals are critically endangered in ethiopia things um that you find south in in kenya and tanzania like the the wildebeest are basically non-existent um um in in Ethiopia and so that further you know begs the question of if all the large mammals are all also gone and there's people everywhere like why, why are the vultures doing really well um and i think i think there's a there's a couple possibilities why that be, might be the case i mean one example one one important factor is that people there's a lot of livestock throughout Ethiopia and the vultures don't really care if it's a if it's a native ungulate or if it's a um it's it's livestock so they'll they'll eat whatever. So as long as there's there's a food source then that's fine. Um Ethiopia is also a, a country where there's not it's it's not very highly developed and so there's um the waste system is still very rudimentary. And so throughout the country um, most small towns will have a local butcher who will uh, butcher butcher animals for human consumption, and then there'll be a site associated either directly with that butcher shop or or maybe just outside of the town where the remains of the animals that have been butchered are thrown. Um, in and this is even the case in in the capital of Ethiopia in, in Addis Ababa that has has several of these butcher shops where they actually have these fenced in compounds. Um, to exclude the mammalian scavengers like dogs, right, um, where they throw all the the remains of the of the, the bones and things that aren't aren't for human consumption, and they effectively work as as uh, vulture vulture restaurants where there's just hundreds of vultures coming to these these butcher butcher shops, um, and consuming the remains of meat, and so that's both a uh, I think potentially like a really good supplement to, to vulture populations. And it's also, it's kind of a mutually beneficial thing where the vultures are coming and they're removing all this waste from in, in the case of Addis Ababa from like inner city, they're, they're, you know, getting rid of all this, um, waste that could be a really important or big threat in terms of, in terms of is If it was just sitting there and festering or if dogs were coming and eating it and, um, one one last thing I would say about that is ethiopia also there there's there seems to be quite a a conservation ethic amongst the ethiopian people um that is that is more that is surprising just in 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 the extent to which people are um really interested in 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 wildlife and in conserving things um and that is that can be seen when you're out birding in Ethiopia in, in that like a lot of birds, things like, like doves that you cannot get anywhere close to in most places in the world, you can walk right up to in Ethiopia. And I think it's indicative of a kind of long found reverence for wildlife in the country. Um, so that may, that may play, play a role as well
0: very interesting very interesting so i i mean do do vultures in particular have uh sort, sort of cultural significance uh within ethiopia
2: no, no i mean not 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 that i'm aware of um but but that being said like they're not they're not um reviled either it's not a it's um they're not looked down upon either so it's
0: Right, and they're, and they're obviously, you know, they're, they're, they're playing this, this important and, you know, it's a seemingly very visible role within these human mm-hmm. communities by removing all of, um, you know, this, uh, this, this waste, right? Um,
2: yeah, yeah, and so, yeah, related to that, so I was really, the first time I went to Ethiopia and visited Addis Ababa and I, I went to some of these butcher shops because I had heard about them from other colleagues and I was just like really blown away. I mean they're they're not the most pleasant of places to be because they you know, there's a lot of uh it's a big pile of bones and, and a and a ton of vultures, but it, they're really fascinating places with um in some cases literally hundreds of vultures um gathering, as well as in some cases many different species of eagles and um black kites, um, thick-billed raven, which is a endemic raven species to the endemic to, to the Ethiopian highlands. And so there's these, you know, in the inner city, there's this, there'll be this butcher shop and there's like a group of, um, maybe five or six endangered species and a few endemic species. And they're all concentrated, you know, in this, in downtown Addis Ababa, um, so I was really taken aback and just kind of uh, blown away by by these places the first time I visited. And so actually, this this last year, um, I I took some cameras to Ethiopia and um, and mounted them. We kind of with with some local colleagues. We we talked to the butcher shop owners. They're all private compounds, and we, we kind of talked to them about how you know how we're really interested in the vultures and how important they are. Um, we uh, convinced them to to let us put these cameras up to monitor the vulture populations that are concentrating at these at these places. And so currently, we're we're collecting data on which species are are using these sites, and um, you know during what times of day and and throughout the year, um, and and in what numbers. So it'll be really really interesting to to look at that data as it as it piles up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and that kind of brings me into my next question, which you know, sort sort of tying this back into, you know, your your research focus, your doctoral mm-hmm. research. Um, you know, I, you sort of gave us a, a sort of a broad picture of uh, you know you know some of your research goals, but I, I guess I'm wondering if there are any sort of you know specific. Uh, specific questions that you're hoping to answer through your research. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, um, one of them is specifically related to how how vultures influence uh, the, the the decomposition time of, of carcasses. And so, one thing that I'm I'm going to be working on uh, this coming summer is is uh, a simple experiment looking at how, when vultures are present and absent at a carcass, um, how that changes how long it takes for a carcass to to de- deteriorate, to rot, um, or or to be eaten. And so, um, I, I plan to be to do experiments on on three continents. So here in in Utah, in Turkey, and in Ethiopia. Um, by artificially placing out carcasses kind of over the landscape, some of them, you know, completely available to all the scavengers, um, just as a normal carcass would be, and then others by um, putting cages over them during the daytime to exclude the avian scavengers, and then taking the cages off because mammalian scavengers primarily scavenge at night. And so just as a way to isolate how how influential vultures and other avian scavengers, are in in affecting how um, how carcasses decompose, and I think that's it's a it's a pretty simple question, but it's, um, it's something that I think is really important to look at because if we if we have declines of vultures across continents, um, I think that that, it, that can cause really profound changes in 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 global ecology that we don't really we don't know really what the repercussions of that will be. And so that, that'll that be to figuring out how, um, you know, what, what some of the effects of declines in vultures may be.
0: So sort of as a final note here, I'm wondering if there is anything that... Uh, that that you could point to that folks you, you know living outside of the range of you know uh, most of these vulture species that we're talking about you know folk, folks who don't live in in Ethiopia or in Africa in the Middle East mm-hmm. you know uh, outside of the range of the Egyptian vulture is there anything you can point to that um, that that folks can do to to help in conservation efforts for these birds. <laughs>
2: Yeah. Yeah. I I think it's a really good question. And and I think there are are a lot of ways that um, people can affect things both locally and internationally. I I personally really like to promote conservation locally, even though, even though I, you know, I, I don't work in my own backyard here in Utah, but I'm, but I'm uh, working overseas. But I think, I think for, for most people, it makes a lot of sense to think about things in your backyard. Um, and, and, in our backyard in the American West, we have um, a highly endangered uh, vulture species, which is the California condor. Um, and so I think to, to that species, um, learning more about the non-lead uh, issue in terms of um, using non-lead a- ammunition for if if you are going to go out and hunt or if you, you have uh, hunters in the family— uh, um, I think that's that's something really important that we can help kind of spread the message locally in in, in terms of international work um, I think that if, if you have a particular interest in, in a conservation issue um, it does make a lot of sense to to donate uh, money to organizations that really have the the that are really specialized in that issue and have projects going and and really have people on the ground and and, and know what to do. Um, so so a couple organizations that I've I've worked it with or am currently working with that are doing really great work um, in terms of vulture conservation um, are Kuzey Doa Society, which is the a nonprofit that we collaborate with in Turkey, um, also. Uh, the Peregrine Fund, which uh, is doing a lot of great work in, with vulture conservation, both in the United States and in Africa and in South Asia, um, are, are good organizations. If you're concerned about um, if you're concerned about vultures, uh, a lot of people, even that are really conservation minded, don't think about you know throwing a banana peel or an apple core at the window when we're driving down the driving down the road um but there's a lot of evidence that littering like organic matter on highways can really uh play a big role in um in causing you know increased mortality along roads so so like that apical core will attract you know more larger uh, mice populations to live along the side of the roads and then you have a red-tailed hawk that comes in trying to try hunt the mouse it gets hit hit by a car and then a turkey vulture comes in to feed on the roadkill and it can kind of just perpetuate a cycle um, so I think that's a, that's a really simple and easy thing that we can do locally.
0: A, a good tip, a good measure to protect, you know, both raptor and, and vulture populations that, um, that, that I wasn't aware of that, that was sort of brought to my attention, uh, through that, that conversation I had with, uh, with Corin Kendall a, a couple of weeks back. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's definitely, definitely a good one to reiterate for sure. Um, well, yeah, thank, thanks, thanks uh, a lot for coming on the show today, Evan, and for, sharing all of this fantastic knowledge about uh, vulture populations um, in, in the Middle East and in East Africa and also here in the American West. Um, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, I've learned a few things despite the fact that, uh, you know, we've talked about all these issues uh, sort of numerous times over beers. Um, yeah, it's it's been fun.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, th- thanks a lot, Matt. And uh, best of luck on the. Um the podcast as it goes forward. It's been fun.
0: All right. That was our interview with PhD candidate and vulture expert, Evan Beakley. As we talked about, Evan has a great perspective on vulture conservation, having worked with vultures on three continents, but it was the details that he shared about the Egyptian vulture that really blew me away. I had no idea that these birds are tool users. How fascinating. I was also really interested by the cultural role that Egyptian vultures have played throughout early human history. Now, as usual, it is the connections between wildlife communities and human communities that I find to be most intriguing. And Evan's work documenting the presence of endangered avian scavengers at carcass dumps within Addis Ababa is truly amazing. Can you imagine seeing groups of hundreds of scavenging birds, many of them endangered within some of our largest cities in North America? Of course, as Evan talks about, there is this natural symbiosis between human communities and avian scavengers. And this is certainly a global phenomenon. Dump sites all across the world are places where scavenging birds congregate. California condors were known to visit dump sites in Southern California up through the 1960s. So maybe the practices of butchers in Addis Ababa could serve as a model for other large cities around the world. Hopefully, Evan's research will help us answer this very question. Now, Evan also had some great ideas for how folks can get involved in vulture conservation efforts no matter where they live. And first and foremost is make a donation. Evan mentioned several nonprofits working to protect vultures both within his study areas in Turkey and Ethiopia, but also all across the globe. Check out the show notes page for this episode to learn more about these organizations. Evan has also just launched a crowdsourced fundraising campaign to help fund his research on Egyptian vultures. He has timed the launch of this campaign to go alongside the release of this podcast episode. So let's help him get this campaign off to a good start. Uh, you can check that out at gofundme.com vulture. So again, that's go G-O Fund Me, F-U-N-D-M-E.com slash vulture. You'll find his campaign there, and all of these donations go directly towards funding Evan's Egyptian vulture research in Turkey and Ethiopia. Very cool. Now, to protect vultures in your own backyard, there are a number of things that you can do regardless of where you live. And first of all, and I know I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again, if you are a hunter, you really have to make the switch to non-lead ammunition. There's really no excuse not to do this. And if you have friends or family members who hunt, start this conversation with them and let them know how important this issue is. If you want to learn more about this issue, or maybe you're looking for a resource to help convince a friend or family member of the importance of this issue, uh, be sure to check out my feature length film on this topic, uh, which you can find at scavengerhuntfilm.com. And you can watch the film there on that website. Now, another easy tip for protecting vultures as well as raptors is don't litter. This is an issue that was brought up by Karen Kendall, but it's worth reiterating here. Uh, stop throwing that organic waste out of your car window. Uh, in doing so, you're attracting these small prey species, which lures both raptors and scavengers closer into major highways and uh, can increase the rate of collision deaths for these birds. Now, that about wraps it up for this episode of the Eyes on Conservation podcast. Be sure to check out those show notes for more information on Egyptian vulture research and how to get involved in vulture conservation no matter where you live. Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org EOC16. That's wildlensinc.org EOC16. This podcast is produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. The Birds and the Beats is produced by Ben Mirren. And our theme music is by the Humanoids.